A few months ago, Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield sat down with CNBC contributor Adam Bryant for an in-depth interview. Stuart, great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you too. Slack is growing quickly. They chatted about how the cloud-based communications tool is doing. Slack says it's built a community of 10 million daily users, and it has a reported cash pile of about $900 million. So Brian asked the question that had been on everyone's minds for a little while. And there are a lot of questions around the finances, though, and I'm going to ask one. Everybody sure. wants to know about IPO. And you can tell that Butterfield doesn't really want to talk about it. Well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but successful technology company may IPO in future is not that interesting of a headline in the same way that, like, recently married couple may have children in future or something like that. Um, he says, you know, an IPO is almost certainly the outcome. So Brian accepts Butterfield's answer and quickly moves on to his next question. But a little more than a month later, something happens. Slack announces that it's going public, but not with a traditional IPO. It's going to do something a little different. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, we look at what it means for a generation of tech companies, including Slack, Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft, these unicorns as they're called. What it means for them to be going public, and why some of them are doing it by pretty unconventional means. In order to understand what's happening with tech companies that are going public today, we've got to go back a few years, back to the dot-com bubble. After a high-octane start on the stock markets this year, some are whispering now about a recession. And those watching the markets point to this. New York's high-tech Nasdaq exchange had its worst year ever. A sure sign, they say, that the dot-com bubble has burst. That's a news clip from December 29th, 2000, during the heart of the dot-com crash. Many of those who watched this wild year on the markets probably aren't sad to see it go. The rise of the web was an exciting thing. Startup internet companies, or dot-coms as they were called, were rapidly going public soon after they were founded. And what fed into this mania was investor enthusiasm to buy up shares in these very risky companies. Because if it worked, if you put money in, say, shares of Amazon, it was going to eventually be a good investment. But at the time, there were way more companies like Pets.com and Boo.com than there were companies like Amazon. These companies managed to reach huge market valuations only to eventually fail. The expectations were that if you bought the right dot-com stock, you could be a millionaire just like your next-door neighbor. So I talked to the FT's Nicole Bullock. She covers U.S. equities for the Financial Times. And I asked her about the boom and bust of the dot-com bubble. It was really two things. First, there was tremendous demand, particularly from retail investors. There was a lot of enthusiasm generally about this great new thing, the internet that we were all using. And certainly people wanted to find a way to invest in it, and they got very excited about investing in it because they were watching CNBC and seeing all of these stocks have these meteoric rises in uh, very quickly after going public. On the other hand, you had euphoria among executives as well. People were starting new businesses. They too were seeing the bonanza in the stock market. And through that combination, you had companies able to go public on business plans rather than actual businesses. 
So certainly that went along for a period of time, but there was a real reckoning at the end of it, culminating in around 2000. So in the the tech boom of the 1990s, going public was sort of at the forefront of tech founders' ideas about the progression of the company. And in fact, many were a bit ahead of their skis on that and wound up going public too soon. And now we're in the middle of a new kind of tech boom. And this newer batch of startups have basically done the opposite. So companies have waited much longer. Granted, they had the benefit of these vibrant private markets, but I think they also had the benefit of hindsight in that we learned that that euphoria over new ideas and new technologies can be great in some ways, but it also, from the IPO market standpoint, ended up being uh, kind of disastrous to a certain extent. Nicole, what has this meant for public markets? Everyone from bankers, lawyers, to even the current chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission has expressed concern about the shrinking pool of listed companies in the United States. There's been this development of a very robust and vibrant market for private investing. And probably the most high-profile example of the way that this has been used has been the creation of this group of companies known as unicorns. So far, we've seen uh, 25 new billion-dollar startups on pace with last year. Technology is the second best-performing sector in the S&P 500 since President Trump's election victory last November. What is the next big company in the sector to join the illustrious unicorn ranks? These are companies that predominantly in the tech sector that have reached valuations of $1 billion or more before going public. So the idea in calling them unicorns was that this used to be rather rare. But because the market for private funding has grown so much, now we even have decacorns. So those would be Uber, for example. So we're talking about companies that have reached a valuation of $10 billion, even more. These are not companies short on cash. So it used to be after a certain point, you had to tap the public markets to continue raising money and continue growing. That has changed. There's tremendous interest and tremendous amount of money available for private investment. Part of that is coming from traditional public investors starting to buy into private deals. Um, Also, on the part of these new tech visionaries, the lure and the cachet of going public just didn't have the same fascination that it did 20 years ago. And it almost, I would say a couple of years ago, it was almost kind of cooler not to be a public company. Some regulatory changes were also in the mix. In the years since big IPOs from Google and Facebook The rules changed for when companies would have to publish financial statements. It used to be that once you hit 500 shareholders, you had to make those disclosures. That's been changed, and that has allowed some companies to stay private longer than they have in the past. Companies tend to go public for a number of reasons. Early-stage investors and employees will eventually want to cash in. And having publicly traded shares also gives a company a kind of currency for for M&A activity. Often, a big part of why companies go public is to raise money. They hire banks as advisors, go on what's called a roadshow to tell would-be investors about their company. 
But what happens with these companies, these unicorns or decacorns, that don't necessarily have to get an infusion of cash? They're not looking to raise money. Because there's been so much money in the private market, some of these companies are awash in cash and feel like they want to be public companies, but they don't necessarily need to raise the money. And this is where we first heard about the idea of a direct listing, where a company lists its shares directly on a stock exchange instead of going through so much of that traditional process. This idea of potentially disintermediating Wall Street, so sort of doing a kind of un-Wall Street IPO. So instead of hiring a team of banks that will underwrite your stock offering and market it to a group of large institutional investors, through a very managed process and then allocate shares based on demand, the shares in a direct listing just start trading at a designated time. And at that point, they're available to anyone who wants to buy them or sell them. They'll still hire banks as advisors. Investment banks will help these companies suss out the price at which both buyers and sellers of the stock might meet. But it's not that big marketing blitz that typically surrounds the transition to public markets. As has been reported previously, Spotify is considering and is still currently focused on a direct listing. One of our original disruptors, Spotify, going public via direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange today. The New York and you'll Guys. remember this isn't actually an IPO. It's just a direct listing. So Spotify. I would say my and anyone in the music industry was probably just like, what is a direct listing? Would be the question, first question you had. Not even is this a bad or good idea. Anna Nicolau covers Spotify for the FT. It's a brand that everyone knows and a lot of people use, which is one of the reasons why they were able to do such a different kind of unconventional listing. So Anna, instead of going through the typical initial public offering process, Spotify actually listed its shares directly on the New York Stock Exchange. It's called a direct listing. Why did they do that? I mean, there had been talk and rumors about them going public for several years. I think it was always sort of expected. They took on a lot of debt. To their credit, there's a lot of interest from investors. So I think that, I mean, there were at least three years when it was kind of always a question of when, not if, Spotify will go public. I think the timing really did make sense. And I think they saw that they had a momentum on their side. This whole thing came from Barry McCarthy, who is Spotify's CFO. He has a lot of experience in kind of in, the, in banking. He was the Netflix CFO. He took Netflix through its own IPO. And so he pitched this idea to Daniel Eck and Spotify's senior management. They trust him a lot. He obviously has, you know, a story behind him saying, you know, I took Netflix public. You want to be like Netflix. It makes sense. He's, he's a very by the books kind of guy. And he basically said, look, we have this brand recognition that few companies have. And with that, we can probably get away with doing things a bit differently. He laid out the kind of the whole idea to Spotify's management. And I think it really resonated with them because they view themselves as a pioneer. And to their credit, they kind of are, at least in the music space. All of those things kind of came together as this was a good idea. They wanted to do things differently. They want to disrupt every kind of thing they can disrupt. And this became especially clear, didn't it, when uh, Daniel Ek live-streamed what Spotify had called an investor day back in March of 2018. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming today, and welcome to Spotify's first Investor Day. For us, going public has never really been about the pomp or the circumstance of it all. 
So you won't see us ringing any bells or throwing any parties. And despite the enormous respect I have for the New York Stock Exchange in this process, I also won't be on the floor doing any interviews. And this is because I think the traditional model for taking a company public just isn't a very good fit for us. So how did the actual day that the company listed, how did that actually go? It went kind of astoundingly smoothly. I think, I mean, there was obviously a lot of noise and talk about it beforehand because this hadn't really been done before on this scale at all. The first few days for Spotify will tend to be driven by the more of the trading dynamics, the demand for the shares, the supply of folks selling the shares because it's such a unique event. From what Spotify has told me, that volatility was much lower than they expected it to be. The big thing for Spotify, though, that I was told is that from this open price of 165.90 to whatever it closes at, they don't want to see a lot of fluctuations. They want a modest level of stock swings. They know it's going to sw- swing a little bit. The fact that it was an absolute chaos on day one was definitely a vote in its favor. And I think what happened after a few hours is a lot of people who were out there watching it, who were shareholders themselves. Lots of bankers, as well as companies were intently watching because maybe they were considering, would they do something like this? Would this take off? Where it's been. So here's the good question. Here's the right question. Is this a successful IPO or not? I think it's very clear that the Spotify direct listing was a success, and we're seeing that now in all kinds of investment in the music industry. Nicole, what about getting beyond the music industry? Spotify has used the direct listing. Slack, as we noted, is looking to do a direct listing. We've got two. If we get a third direct listing story, does that mean we'll have a trend? So the general feeling is that we might see more, but it's not going to overtake the traditional IPO process anytime in the near future. Mm -hmm. So what do the banks say about this? I mean, this is a very lucrative part of their business collecting the fees from underwriting uh, an IPO. How how do they respond to this next sort of phase of disruption in their business? That's a very important point because another reason to do a direct listing is that it's cheaper. So Spotify paid three advisors about $35 in fees. By contrast, uh, Snap, the owner of the messaging app Snapchat, paid its underwriters about $100 So certainly it's money saving. So what do banks think about this? Uh, I think that they're aware that time marches on. And, you know, even on Wall Street, it's not a static place. Basically, it just shrinks the number of companies that are making the money. So where if you do a traditional roadshow and you have a whole team of lots of different investment banks, then everybody's kind of getting a piece of the pie. Whereas in a direct listing, you're just sort of concentrating this among a smaller group. So what you have to do is be in that group. But I don't think anyone's freaking out yet because, it, again, the feeling is that for now it's limited to a small group. And who knows, in the next tech boom, the private market may not be there or it will be something else. So it's hard to say that this is a lasting change in a process that has been around and, you know, for the most part, even with its flaws, persists. So whether it's through the direct listing or a more traditional IPO, we do have this spate of tech companies, well-funded tech companies that are planning to go public this year. Will the public markets be able to sustain some of these monstrous private valuations? Well, it's more of a problem for the investors that bought privately at those valuations than it is for the IPO market. So the IPO market will set the price at which 
the public is willing to buy these shares. And the people who would take a loss would be those investors who got in privately at the higher valuations. You know, maybe some companies have waited in order to get their financials to the point that they would match some of the valuations that they've seen in the private market. But I don't know how much longer that trend would run. And over the last couple of years, people have talked about the new tech bubble actually being in the private market rather than the public market. And so you've had this concept of, quote unquote, down rounds. So will will companies have to come public at a valuation that is lower than their last private fundraising? And we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Sure. So, Nicole, what are the changes do you think we might start to see with the way these, you know, one-time startups transition into public companies? One of the most interesting things will be whether we'll see more changes, even small tinkering with the IPO process. So there's been a lot of attention around direct listings. For now, people don't think that's an absolute game changer, but it does signal that people are thinking about ways that they might change the IPO process. And it's one of the areas of Wall Street that has remained rather static, even as other areas have changed so much. So over the last 10 years, 20 years, the way that people trade securities, trade stocks, is completely different. It's gone completely electronic. Whole trading floors don't exist anymore. Massive change in the way people trade stocks, but the way people initially sell stocks has not had that kind of monumental change. Yeah, I think the latest we've seen comes from Lyft, which is expected to go public as early as later this month. Uh, And both Lyft and Uber are expected to offer their drivers access to shares in their respective initial public offerings. And so that will be really interesting to see. I imagine we'll be seeing much more disruption coming to Wall Street this way. Thanks, Nicole. You can read more from Nicole Bullock on the public markets and from Anna Nicolau on Spotify, all at FT.com. This episode was produced by Mark Filipino. And starting next week, we'll be taking our first break of the season. We'll be back with brand new episodes in April. But in the meantime, we'd love to hear what you think of the show, where you listen, why you listen, and what you'd like to hear more of. You can email me at behindthemoney at FT.com. 